Amen. We serve a great and mighty God. And if you need proof of the greatness of our God, look no further than the cross of Jesus Christ, that he would send his one and only son to die on your behalf. Um, he's a great God, and he deserves a great praise. Happy New Year to everybody. I am excited and delighted to be with you this morning. Um, and I pray that you would be uh, just as excited to corporately worship Jesus together. Um, and, and I realized, man, that it, it's nothing but the grace of God that we didn't make, that we did not make it out of 2016. Many people went through some of the same stuff that you went through in 2016 and did not make it out. Uh, many people went through this, some of the same stuff that you went through in 2016 and lost their mind. But uh, you're sitting in here with your right mind. You brush your own teeth, you clothe your own self, and that is, uh, God deserves a great praise for that, and I'm just, I'm so grateful, um, grateful for the Lord to be on, on the first day of this year to be gathered with you, so thankful. Listen, I want to quickly get to the word, but let me make a couple of quick, quick, quick announcements, and then I want to get us right into the word. Uh, tomorrow does begin our solemn assembly fast. Solemn assembly comes from Joel chapter 1, verse number 14. Let me just read it. Consecrate a fast and call in a solemn assembly. Gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land in the house of the Lord your God and cry out to the Lord. And that is what this week will look like for us. If you're trying to figure out what solemn assembly means, it's uh, taken right out of the context of Joel 1.14. And this will be a week that we will consecrate uh, for the entire year. We'll consecrate ourselves back to the Lord. And so the time that you would spend on social media, the time that you would spend browsing through the web, if it's non-work related, we are praying that you would participate in shutting your social media apps down, uh, shutting down at least food for a certain amount of time. And the details are on the app. If you go to the events tab of the app, also on the website, and uh, we have some papers as well. But And ask around. Listen, fasting is very, 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 very difficult when you do it by yourself. But it seems to be a little easier when you do it in a corporate body, when you can call somebody and say, I'm hungry. I'm hungry, too. Let's pray. Uh, that, that something about that just seems to work a little better. So um, my hope and prayer is that everybody in here would participate in the fast. It really is a great way to start our week off and a spiritual discipline that I feel is, is almost a lost, a lost spiritual discipline within the church, um, which is fasting. And so we're not fasting for cars and homes and we're fasting to get with the Lord and get with Jesus. And that's what we'll be doing this week. So I pray that you guys would participate. Let me also give some quick direction uh, how our time will look in the pulpit over the next several months, um, because I haven't done that in a while. Uh, we just finished up our Advent series uh, where we talked about Jesus Christ and the birth of Jesus Christ, the incarnation of Jesus Christ throughout December. And today will be a, a quick standalone sermon. Next week we'll do, it'll be Vision Sunday. So Vision Sunday simply means that I will recast the vision of this church. We'll look back at how faithful the Lord was uh, since we started in the summer of 2015 and then all the way through to now and then push us forward to what I think the Lord is doing in our church and will be continuing to do throughout this um, this year. So this will be a, won't be a typical sermon. It will be, but it, it won't be at the same time. Uh, so please come out if you are interested to hear about the church a little bit more. Next week is Vision Sunday. So please come out for that. And then after that, June, January 15th, June, man, I'm pushing the year quick. 
January 15th, we'll begin a three-week series on discipleship that you just saw. Um, we have some cool stuff that's built around that series in terms of something that's supplemental uh, that we will, a resource that we'll provide out for you guys either this week or next week, probably this week, in preparation for the discipleship series. The Bible has a lot to say about discipleship, and discipleship was modeled throughout the scriptures down to our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ discipling. Um, and so we'll look at what discipleship is from a biblical perspective and it's been my experience that most of us come to the table of discipleship with our own perception of what it means versus what the Word of God says about discipleship. So we'll go through a three-week series on discipleship, and then I am so excited that February 5th, we will be jumping, first Sunday in February, we'll jump into a book uh, of the Bible, First Peter 5. We'll go through the entire five chapters of First Peter 5, and I'm excited about that. I feel most comfortable in a book of the Bible, again, because it doesn't allow me to pick and choose. Topical, I get to pick and choose kind of where we go, but when you're in a book of the Bible, you have to address everything that the scriptures say. And so there's five chapters that have that deal with a range of different issues for the believer, the believers that are living in exile, and I think that this uh, sermon series on First Peter is going to be a profound one. But today we'll be in the book of Jude, so if you could grab your copies of God's Word. Meet me in Jude. It is the second to last book of the Bible. So if you turn to Revelations, if you have physical copy, turn to Revelation, turn back one book, you'll find a short jewel there in the New Testament called Jude. And if you have a device, you can, uh, you can click around until you find it. Bypass your text messages and your emails, your Pokemon app or whatever you, whatever you do. Bypass that and get to the Bible app and uh, meet me in the book of Jude. Listen, the verses that we're going to go through, it's two verses today. We did 18 last week, 18 verses in John. And so um, I thought I'd be gracious the first day of the year and do only two verses. But you will notice before I even read it, you'll notice that once I start to read the verses, you're going to see that it is a very, very familiar um, passage of scriptures that we often hear at this church. And when I say often, let me define that by saying you hear it every single week. What do I mean by that? At the end of communion, every single week, I always conclude our service by reading these two verses intentionally, intentionally, because it is a doxology. And so we will go through two verses that are a doxology that, that Jude wrote. All right, pick me up in verse number 24. Verse 24 says, now unto him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now, and forever. Amen. I want to preach from a topic entitled 2016 Doxology. 2016 Doxology, and we'll define that. Let us pray first. Lord, we do come to you thanking you for helping us to exit out of an old year and enter into a new one. We are grateful and realize that it is only by your sustaining power that we're able to sit here. And we sit here in anticipation of your word, desperately seeking that your spirit would breathe on us today on this first year. Um, truth is, many of us may have walked in here beat up from 2016. 
Um, some of us may be coming in here rejoicing and skipping because we had a great 2016. Whatever the case may be, Father, may your infallible word and this doxology serve us well today to bring praise and glory to your son, Jesus Christ. It is in his name and his name alone that we come before you. Amen. Amen. 2016 doxology. In preparation for a new year, I typically spend the last two weeks off from work, semi-off from work, but really doing a lot of reflecting on the previous year, goals that were met and uh, ways that the Lord was faithful, doors that were open, doors that were shut. I don't know about y'all, but I praise God for shut doors almost more than I praise God for open doors. Um, But I spent the last couple of weeks this year just really resting with the family, casting vision, and really reflecting on 2016. And whether you walked in here with a great 2016 and things went well for you, doors were open, you got jobs and relationships are going well, everything's going well, or whether you walked in here and you were beat up where you may have gotten laid off, relationships aren't going well, whatever the case may be, All of us must come to the conclusion that God has been gracious to us in 2016. And and if you need proof that God was gracious to you in 2016, the fact that you're sitting in here this morning in 2017 is proof that God was faithful to you in 2016. Now, the inscription above our text today has one word, and I asked our media team to put up the verse, put this inscription that's in at least my English standard Uh, version of the Bible. It says doxology. Doxology. Let me define doxology. Doxology is an expression of praise to God. An expression of praise to God. And you'll note that Jude writes this doxology at the end of the book of Jude. And typically within traditional church, what we normally do is we read or sing a doxology at the conclusion of a worship Service. When I was a little boy, I used to attend a church in Jacksonville, North Carolina, which is where my father was stationed in the military. And the church I used to attend was First Baptist Church of Jacksonville under the leadership of Reverend uh, James Brown, not to be confused with the Godfather of Soul, uh, but his name was James Brown as well. And at the end of every single service, I kid you not, every single service, we would sing a song that was written in 1674 by a guy named Thomas Cannon. The familiar words of the song, and if you know it, uh, you'll probably start to hum this song in your mind when I say it. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise him, all creatures here below. Praise him above the heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. And then we would end with a amen. Yeah, see, I knew we had some traditional people in here. Amen. But this is known as a doxology song. It comes at the conclusion of a service because the church wants to give praise, wants the final word or the final song of that service to be praise to God. And that is why I intentionally read these two verses at the end of our service, because I do not want to end service with my words, but I want to end service with what the inspired word of God says about praising God. And so that's why we ended with A doxology. The word doxology comes from a Greek word doxa, which means glory, splendor, grandeur, and praise. And doxology should not be confused with a benediction. Benediction is different than a doxology. A benediction ascribes ascribes praise and a blessing to you on your way out. 
the gathered, the congregation, the assembled congregation receives a benediction, which is a blessing. The Latin word, the Latin term for benediction actually is blessing. Let me give you some Bible behind this. Here's a benediction that was written in Numbers 6, 24 to 26. Note who's getting, um, note who's getting the blessing here. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. That is a benediction. That's pronouncing a blessing on you before you walk out of the doors. But here's a doxology. Paul pins a doxology in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20 and 21. Watch who's getting the glory here. Now unto him who is able to do immeasurably. More than we can ask or imagine, according to the power that works within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all times and generations forever and ever. Amen. Do you note the difference between a doxology, which gives praise and glory to God, and a benediction, which sends a blessing to you on your way out? And so what I wanted to do as I was concluding the year of 2016 was pronounce a doxology over 2016. What do I mean by that? I want to praise God for 2016. No matter what you come in here with, no matter what baggage you brought in here, no matter what baggage you're bringing from 2016 into 2017, all of us should praise God for 2016. Here's the thing. There's no wasted years with God. There's no wasted seasons with God. Everything that happens in your life, the Lord uses. And so I want to pronounce a blessing or praise to God for 2016. And so the same way that we end every single service by reading these two verses, I want to not just read these two verses at the conclusion of 2016, but I want to unpack what these verses mean and what Jude meant when he wrote this letter. Now, now that we've learned a little bit about what a doxology is, let us consider the passage together. Let me just give you quick history or, or, or just some information on the book of Jude. Jude is, if you'll notice, it's only one chapter long. It is a very short book. And the author of Jude in Jude, chapter, in Jude number one, verse number one, tells us that the author is Jude himself. In fact, it says, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ, and brother of James. Now, this is interesting, and I'm not preaching those verses, but it's interesting that Jude begins the book by saying, I'm a servant of Jesus, and I'm a brother of James. Why is that interesting? Because Jude is actually a half-brother of Jesus Christ. Jude doesn't mention that, though. He does not mention he's a half-brother of Jesus. He mentions he's a half-brother of James, and many commentaries say that Jude doesn't mention this because he wants to be humble, and he wants to give reverence to God. And so, and so instead of leading with, hey, I'm Jesus' half-brother, I'm going to lead with, no, I'm a servant of him, which is powerful. This is how you know Jesus is the Messiah, because even his own brothers worshiped him. His earthly brothers worshiped him. Jude worshiped him. James worshiped Jesus, another half-brother of Jesus. Not to mention, when Jesus was on earth, I mean, among other biblical affirmations, the fact that he called his mother woman was enough for me. Like, I don't know anybody. Like, you remember the wedding at Cana when, uh, when, when Jesus' mother comes up to him and says, Lord, the, the wine has run out. And what does Jesus say? Woman, what does that have to do with me? I'm reading that like, did Jesus just say that to his mother? Like, I would never say that to my mother. That's an affirmation that he is 
the Messiah. No, I'm, I'm kidding by saying that, but it is an affirmation. Uh, but Jude is a half-brother of Jesus, but doesn't mention it. Doesn't lead with that. He leads with the fact that he is a servant of Jesus. And now that we've went down the family tree and uh, learned a little bit about a doxology and learned a little bit about Jude, let us consider the verses that are before us. Look at verse number 24. Now unto him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. Let me lift up the first part of that. Now unto him who is able. Let's praise God for the fact that he is able. What an assurance, assurance that Jude gives us this morning that God is able. There are three doxologies within the New Testament that speak about God being able. Three doxologies. One is in Romans chapter 16, verse 25. Now unto him who is able, listen to this, to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20, which I just read. Now unto him who is able to do far more abundantly. Then we can ask or think according to the power that works in us. And now finally, Jude jumps on this able bandwagon and shouts, now unto him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before his glory with great joy. Jude here does not remember a time when God used to be able. Jude here doesn't promise a time in the text that God will be able, but this is a real-time assurance for Jude. Jude says, now unto him who is able. Right now, he is able. And that is the God that we serve. Edward C. Pentecost wrote on this commentary, on this verse. He says, here is the greatest theme of victory, to be sounded, the highest note of praise and adoration possible, the greatest assurance for the Redeemer that God is able. What is he able to do? Look at the text. Now unto him who is able, look at this, to keep you. God is able to keep you. And as you're coming out of 2016, again, whether you had a good one or a bad one, you should praise God for the fact that he was able to keep you through 2017. You just wrote that. Now unto him who is able to do what? To keep you keeps us. And this keeping theme runs throughout the book of Jude. In fact, he started the verse verse with that. I didn't read the rest of verse one, but it said, Jude, a servant of Jesus and brother of James, to those who were called beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. So this is not the first time that Jude, in verse 24, it's not the first time that Jude talks about being kept by the Lord. He talked about it at the start of the book. God is able to keep you. Verse number one, Keep you for Christ Jesus. And both of these verses affirm a biblical affirmation that runs through the theme of Scripture, but that our church holds to, which is known as the perseverance of the saints. God is able to keep you. And here's the thing about God being able to keep you. God is able to keep you not only when you want to be kept, but God is able to keep you when you don't want to be kept. God is able to keep you when you are ready to throw your hands up, when you're ready to give up. In 2016, when you were putting your head under the covers and you were depressed and ready to give up, God was able to keep you, even despite the fact that you didn't want to keep yourself. It's called perseverance of the saints. It's what it's called. It's also known as eternal security. This is what the God that we serve, the God that we serve says that nothing shall be able to separate you from the love of God. God keeps you. You don't keep yourself, you don't white knuckle it, you don't pull yourself up by your own bootstraps, but 
the perseverance of the saints has less to do with your strength and has more to do with God's strength. You're not kept for Christ Jesus because you kept yourself. You're kept for Christ Jesus because God kept you and because God had the ability. But don't get it twisted in 2017. You have a contribution to being kept as well, though. How do I know that? Because verse 21 of this same book, the same book says, keep yourselves in the love of God. And so, yes, God keeps you. But overall, you should have a part in being kept as well. And so Jude proclaims here that you have an active participant. Keep yourself in the love of God. God is able to keep us. The question that should be on your mind that I would love to answer, not by my own opinion, but by the word of God is what does he keep us from? What does God keep us from? Well, the text answers us this morning. We're not left clueless. Verse 21, now unto him who is able to keep you, listen to this, from stumbling. God is not only able, God is not only able to keep you, but God is able to keep you from stumbling. This is a good, good thought here that Jude writes down. The original, I originally memorized this verse in the King James Version. And the KJV says, now unto him who is able, I love that, now unto him, who is able to keep you from falling is what the King James Version says. But I think the text this morning in the English Standard Version gives us a little bit more clarity. Why? Because stumbling precedes falling. What do I mean by that? If I was walking off this stage and I stumbled, first of all, y'all would laugh and I would pray that the Lord would get you for laughing, but whatever. <laughs> I, if I stumbled off this stage... That does not mean that I fell. If I stumbled, I potentially could still be on my feet. What am I saying? God wasn't only able to keep you from falling on your face in 2016. God was able to keep you on your feet in 2016. And if you consider the stuff that you went through, like I said at the beginning when I first got up, the stuff you went through should have took you out, should have taken you out. You should be Plum crazy right now. But the fact that God is able to keep you from stumbling is a good place for us to praise God. And I know we're a quiet church and I know we don't like to do a lot. It's not my disposition to really say anything loud or give talk back or wave my hand. But that when you reflect upon the things that you went through 2016, 2015, 2014, like all of your life, it should bring a praise to you. God is able to keep us. He's not only able to keep us, but he's able to keep us from stumbling. And the context here in our text doesn't just talk about keeping us from things, but it talks about keeping us from destruction and eternal ruin. That's the theme of the scripture. When he's able to keep you from stumbling and falling, it's saying he's able to keep you from eternal destruction. God is able to keep you. This, this is really talking about eternal security. God is able to keep you all the way until the day of redemption. So he's not able to keep you just through this year. December 31st of 2017, we're not just saying he's keeping us there. He's keeping us all the way until he comes back. That's the beauty and the strength of our God being able to keep us. He keeps us. So verse uh, 24 of, of Proverbs, verse 16, chapter 24, of verse 16 says, The righteous fall seven times but he rises again. So it's impossible for you to be a true, regenerate, 
your heart has been changed. You love Jesus. You've confessed Jesus as your Lord. It's impossible for you to say, I lost my salvation. It's impossible for you to say, I used to be a Christian. Why? Because the scripture says he keeps us from stumbling, keeps us from eternal destruction and eternal ruin. There's a little boy walking down the street and he was holding his father's finger, had to be about four years old. And as he was walking and holding his, father finger, holding his father's finger, he suddenly slipped and lost grip of his father's finger and he fell. His father picks him up and dusts him off. He then grabs that same finger and he holds it tighter and they begin to walk along the road again and he falls, loses grip again from his father's hand and he falls a second time. Now, the third time the boy gets up and he says, Father, I have a better idea. Instead of me holding your hand, how about you hold my hand? The father took his big hand and clutched it into this little boy's hand and they went along the way and the boy did not fall. In a greater and deeper and higher way, that is what God does for the believer. He holds your hand and stops you from falling. There's no way that you can, when I say fall, I mean eternal ruin. There's no way you could fall out of grace with God once you're saved. It's impossible. Now, this is not a license for us to go out and do whatever we want to do. But this should birth praise in us that we serve a God that has the ability to keep you when we cannot keep ourselves. Here's the truth of the matter. If you could lose your salvation, hear me, you would. Don't get it twisted. If you could lose your salvation, what time is it? By It's 12.11. You would have lost it this morning. If you could lose your salvation, truth is you can't lose it. Why? Because it's not on your own strength. You didn't save yourself. You don't sustain yourself. Do you, do you understand that you didn't, you didn't bring yourself to love Jesus and you don't keep yourself loving Jesus? It is the strength and the power and the grace of our God. And so it is a miracle that you are saved. But I would, I would argue that it's a greater miracle that you still are saved, that you stayed saved. It's because God keeps you. But he doesn't just keep us. Look at the verse. It says, now unto him who was able to keep you from stumbling and to present you. This is huge. Because the God that keeps you here on earth is the God that's able to present you in heaven. The, there's something that's underneath this text that it's easy for us to read this verse every week and run past. And that is the fact that we will be presented in front of God. All of us in this room, there's nobody in here that can hide from the day that you have to stand before the Lord. All of us in this room will be presented. We'll all have to stand before the Lord before a divine inspection. And it's crazy because many of us live life as though we won't have to stand before the Lord. But 2 Corinthians 5 verse 10 says, For we all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what, is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or or evil. Let me say that again, whether good or evil, no matter where you are, no matter where you are in your faith and your trust with Jesus, all of us will be marched before the presence of God's glory. That's what the scripture says. You will be presented in the presence of his glory. In the Old Testament, a worshiper would send, he, he would try to get into the presence of the Lord by offering a sacrifice. Now, this sacrifice that he had to present had to be blameless. You couldn't bring a sick animal as a sacrifice. This animal couldn't have spots and blemishes. The scripture tells us in Leviticus, the first three verses, that the animal had to be spotless. Now, here's the beauty with the Christian. Look at the verse. Now unto him who was able to keep you from stumbling 
and to present you. So he doesn't just present us as some broken showpiece. Look at the verse. He presents you blameless before his presence of his glory. Like get on your mind that you'll stand before the Lord and be presented as blameless. The reason I want you to get that on your mind is because let's be honest. If we are presented before the Lord based on our own works, it's no way we can say we'll be presented blameless. But Leviticus 1 verses 1 through 3, I know that's a book that we stay away from. But Leviticus 1 verses 1 through 3 says the animal has to be spotless to be in the presence of the Lord. In fact, let me just read it really quickly because I found it interesting this week when I was reading through the book of Exodus. At the end of Exodus, Exodus 40, the very last chapter, and I'm going to get back to our verse, the very last chapter Moses is standing before the tabernacle, the erected tabernacle, tab tabernacle, and he's not able to enter in. This is what it says in chapter 40, verse 35. And Moses was not able to enter into the meeting because the cloud was settled on it. The glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. God's presence was in the tabernacle. Moses is standing out of the tabernacle, not able to enter in. Why? Because there's sin there. But look at the very next book, a few chapters later, the very next book, Leviticus, what I was just quoting, says the Lord called Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meetings and said, speak to the people of Israel and say to them, any one of you brings an offering to the Lord, you should bring the offering of livestock from the herd, from the flock. Look at verse number three. If this offering, if this offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer a male without a blemish. Do you sense our need for the gospel? Why do you sense our need for the gospel? Because the only way that you and I can be presented blamelessly before the presence of God's glory is that there is a sacrifice that was blameless. Can you and I be honest that if we were the sacrifice for the world, we wouldn't be able to be sufficient? Because first of all, you'd have to make a sacrifice for your own sins, which are many. Then you'd have to make a sacrifice for the world and you couldn't live up to the standard that God has. And that's blameless. Jesus Christ is the only sufficient sacrifice because he's the only one that fulfills Leviticus one through three. The offering you give me has to be spotless and blameless. And Jesus Christ was spotless and blameless. And so Jude picks it up and says, now unto him who was able to keep you and to present you blameless. How does he present us blameless? What he does on the cross is takes your sin. So the sin that you were supposed to stand before God with, Jesus Christ takes that sin. And then the scripture tells us in Jude that Jesus then presents you as though you live like him. Like consider the gospel here, that you will and I will be presented blamelessly before the presence of God's glory. This is such good news to us. First Peter 1, 18 and 19 says, you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited by your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver and gold. Listen, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb with a without a blemish or a spot, Jesus Christ is perfection. And in the cross, he gives that perfection to you and I. That should make you want to worship Jesus Christ alone. Do you know how many people hear that and reject the very gospel that will save you? Romans 1.16, the gospel is the power of God 
to salvation, unto salvation for all that believe. Listen, in 2016, you and I could have been blamed for a lot of stuff. This morning, you and I could have been blamed for a lot of stuff. Do not try to stand before the presence of God's glory based on your own merit. You will be crushed. But we stand before the presence of God's glory and we point to Jesus. Don't say a word. Just point to Jesus. Because your faith, your trust, and your devotion to Jesus is what grants you divine access into heaven. We are presented before the presence of God's glory blamelessly. But note the emotion that's in the text. You're not just presented blamelessly. Like Jesus isn't presenting you begrudgingly. He's not upset that he took your sin and that he gave you his blameless, spotless righteousness. He's not upset about that. How do I know that? Look at the rest of verse 24. Now unto him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory. Look at this. With great joy. Jesus Christ presents you blameless, and the emotion that he has is joy. It's good news for all of us. The joy that the scripture talks about here is not just mere happiness, but the joy that the scripture talks about is a celebration with dancing and singing. This is why we can't be a quiet church. Because if you are like, I'm just too reserved, this is not my disposition, understand something. You're going to have a hard time in heaven. Because the scripture says, it doesn't even say joy. It says great joy. So you'll be in heaven worshiping and singing and praising our king. So please don't get it twisted. We're quiet here on earth, but we get to heaven. We think we're somehow going to be like, well, let's worship Jesus. No, you worship him in an expressive way. Why? Because the text just said that he presents you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. Psalm 16, verse 11, in your presence. There is fullness of joy, and at your right hand there are pleasures forevermore. You want to know what real joy is? Get into the presence of God. And you may have had a joyless 2016, but I can promise you in 2017, if you spend time in the presence of God, that is where the scripture in Psalms says it is fullness of joy. This scripture says great joy, exceeding joy. It's not just a joy, but it is a great joy. And I will argue that the joy that's in the text is not just the joy of the presented, but it is the joy of the presenter. It is God's joy. It's not just like you and I will be joyful. Yes, we will. You and I will be joyful that we're standing before God's holy, perfect presence and we're deemed holy and perfect based on Christ's righteousness. Yes, that brings us joy. But understand something that it also brings Christ's joy. That's why the scripture tells us, with the joy set before him, he endured the cross. Hebrews 12, 2, Jesus Christ had joy in presenting you blameless. Jesus Christ had joy taking sinful people that were disconnected from a holy God and connecting them back to that God through his righteousness. Jesus Christ had joy. Matthew Henry wrote here, where there is no sin, there will be no sorrow. But where there is perfection of holiness, which is his presence, there will be perfect joy. I hope that's Jesus calling you. I'm kidding. Where there is holiness, where there is perfection of holiness, there must be a perfection of joy. And this joy, this joy is that, that emptiness that you feel 
That's the presence that you need of Jesus Christ. That, that longing that you feel for, man, there has to be more to life than this. It is more to life than just you. It is Jesus Christ. Scripture says, with great joy, he presents you. Now, verse 24, spent a lot of time on verse 24, but verse 24 shows us what God has done for us. He's able, he kept you, he presents you blameless, and he has great joy. Now, verse 25 is going to show us what we do for God. Verse 24, this is what God did for you. And as a response, really what God did for you, I love the fact that verse 24 shows us what he does for you, but verse 25 shows us that what he does for you isn't about you. It's about him. Why? Because look at verse 25. It says, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Here it is. Be glory, be majesty, be dominion, be authority before all time, now and forevermore. So verse 25 says, this really is the doxology right here. Give praise to the God that's able to present you blameless. Not just praise, but look at the, look at the praise that they're giving. Glory, majesty, dominion, and authority. Give the highest praise we can give to God. Why? Because verse 24 shows us what he has done for us. There's some things in here that I love to point out, though. Look at the first few words of verse 25. To the only God. This shows us the exclusive nature of the one that we praise. The only God. God doesn't, he doesn't sit on a council of other gods. He's not the smartest of other gods. The scripture affirms that God the Father is the only God. That's what the scripture is telling us this morning. It's the exclusive nature. 1 Timothy 5, or 2, verses 5 and 6 says, For there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for, for all. So what the scripture is saying is that the, the adoration and praise that we're going to give in verse 25 goes to one God, the true God. Let's keep going. Verse 25 to the only God, our Savior. I love this because what the verse is showing us is that God the Father is our Savior. Now, the word Savior is used 24 times in the New Testament. And often when the word Savior is used, it's used to reference Jesus Christ, which is God the Son. Yes, he is our savior. But I, this rocked me when I read this earlier the, this week, that the text shows us in verse 25 that God the Father is our savior. So what we often think is, which is right, that Jesus Christ comes to save us from the wrath of God. But the scripture shows us that Jesus Christ doesn't just can't come to save us from the wrath of God, but comes to save us to God. There is a big difference with that. So he doesn't just save you from the wrath of God, but he saves you to the love of God. Scripture says to the only God, our Savior. God is our Savior. 2 Corinthians 5.21, for our sake, he, which is God the Father, made him, Jesus Christ, to be sin who knew no sin, so that we might become the righteousness of Jesus Christ. God made Jesus to be sin. God the Father is our Savior. He's not just Lord He's not just king. First of all, he's Lord of lords. He's king of kings, but he is your savior. And he's our savior because he sent Jesus Christ. And the text affirms that to the only God, our savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord. 
So how God decided to save you was through Jesus Christ. God didn't just snap a finger and you were saved. God didn't just twinkle his nose and you were saved. God saved you through the bloodshed of his son, Jesus Christ. God decided to send heaven's very best, not heaven's second best. He didn't send the, the angels. God decided to save you. He sent his very best, which says to us, we should give God our very best in 2017. He, Jesus Christ, is our mediator. He has, back in the day, we used to say if people had issues with each other, we'd say they had beef. Y'all remember that? Y'all maybe, okay, some people said, oh yeah. We had beef with each other. Jesus Christ comes and squashes the beef between you and God the Father. And how does he squash the beef? By going to a cross and dealing with our sin. He doesn't sweep our sin under the rug. He doesn't bypass our sin without dealing with it. No, he dealt with your sin. And he does it through Jesus Christ and through him alone. Look at these attributes that the scripture gives us here. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Here it is. Be glory. There's four of them. Be majesty. Be dominion and be authority. This is the only doxology within all 66, um, within all 66 books. This is the only doxology that has all four of these attributes named consecutively about God. The only one. And so simply what Jude is saying is these four attributes sum up the transcendence and the bigness of our God. That's what Jude is showing us here. So Jude is simply saying, praise the glory of God. Praise the majesty of God. Praise the dominion of God and praise the authority of God. Like, think on your mind. I can't even, I don't have time to deal with all of them. Think about the authority of God, praising the authority of God. You know why that's good news for us? Because you're going into a new year or we've entered into a new year where God has complete jurisdiction. He has all authority according to the scripture. There, there is, he can do whatever his divine prerogative wants to do in 2017. Praise the authority of God. We don't serve a God that is weak. We don't serve a God that's controlled. We serve a God that's able to do whatever he wants. Praise the glory, the majesty, the dominion, and the authority of God. And no matter who you voted for, because in a few weeks, we're about to transfer earthly power from one president to another president. And no matter who you vote, voted for, this, they don't have this type of authority. No matter who you voted for, we would never say they have dominion, they have authority, they have majesty. They don't have what our God has, which is why we don't have to be worried. So why you never have to be worried about an elected official. You never have to be worried about that. First of all, the church has thrived under bad leadership. Not saying this leadership is bad, I'm just saying. The church has thrived. I'm just, I'm just saying, you know, we have uh, at the church, we have a, uh, through the IRS, we have, um, we're tax exempt because we're a religious organization. And your tax exempt status stops you from talking and endorsing, not talking, but endorsing any candidate. So I'm always careful when it comes to these political lines. But the truth of the matter is no matter who is in office, praise the authority of our God, not the authority of any man. But notice, don't just notice that this God gets our highest praise, but note the timing of the praise. Look at the end of the scripture. Before all time, now, and forever. Many commentators says this sums up all of eternity. Before all time, 
now and forever. Let me make that practical for you. In 2016, he was worthy of your praise. January 1st, he's worthy of your praise. And all of 2017, he's worthy of your praise. What does it mean that he's worthy of our praise before all time? How does that happen? Like I was born in 1980, but the scripture goes to before all time. The scripture just went to saying the God of the universe that's able to save you and to present you before his glory is the God that was worthy of glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before Genesis 1-1. Before anything, I don't even know what that looks like. Before anything was created, when darkness was on the earth, when it was, when it was formless, when it had no void, God was worthy of our highest praise. It says before all time, but it doesn't just stop at before all time. It says now, today, God is worthy of your praise. Again, no matter what you've come in here with, God deserves your praise and he deserves your praise. Whatever happens in 2017. Here's the question as we close that I like us to consider whether you are a believer or whether you have not trusted Jesus. How are things with you and Jesus Christ? So if you're not a believer, think that on the fact that I said that his people, those that have trusted in him, will be presented blamelessly. That is impossible for you to be presented blameless. How are things with you and the one that's able to present you blameless? And if you have trusted Jesus, how are things with your relationship with Jesus if you've trusted him? How was your relationship with Jesus in 2016? How was your relationship with Jesus coming out of 2016? I am sure that many of us in here would admit that we need to pray more. We need to seek God's face more. We need to get in our word more. We need to trust Jesus more. Jeremiah 17, 17, 17, 7, blessed is the man that trusts in the Lord whose trust is in the Lord. How is your trust level with your Savior, Jesus Christ? Every head bowed and every eye closed. As we talk about the doxology of 2016, what would it look like for us to exit out of a year praising our God, worshiping our God, singing praises to our God? That's what a doxology is. A doxology has nothing to do with you. Hear me. Nothing to do with you, but everything to do with our God. Psalm 115, not unto us, not unto us, but unto you get glory. This morning, we praise you for the good and the bad in 2016. And I pray that that praise would move from just an internal feeling in our heart to an adoration on our lips. We praise you for keeping us from stumbling. We praise you for presenting us blamelessly. And we praise you for the fact that you do that with great joy. Father, I pray that that would thrust us into a 2017 where we do nothing without thinking, how is this going to bring God glory? Father, we make decisions and we don't think about how that impacts your glory. We make selfish and sometimes 
sinful decisions and don't realize how that grieves you. So Father, help us as we enter into a new year to trust you. The one in this room that doesn't know you hasn't trusted you. What a testimony it would be that the first, ye- the first day of the year I gave my life to the Lord. I pray that that man or that woman that doesn't know you would trust you and give their life to you. But I also pray for the one that does know you, that you would strengthen our relationship with you. That you strengthen our relationship. And this week, as we move into a week of consecration and fasting, help us to take that seriously. Help us to deny our flesh. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is so weak. And that weakness often shows up in how we do life. But Father, would you strengthen us according to your word? One of the doxologies in Romans says to the only God who's able to strengthen us, strengthen our weak knees, Lord, and help us to trust you. It is in Christ's name we give glory and honor, dominion and authority, now and forever. Amen.